Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. Dr. Greer, you ready to talk some science? Always, Jim. Always. All right, Susanna. So today, you spoke with Don Hirschman. So she's, um, let me just go through some titles here, Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Columbia University Medical Center. She's the leader of the breast cancer program there at Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. She was just named an American Cancer Society clinical research professor. And when that was announced, I was looking to see, you know, like what were the the seminal accomplishments, the research breakthroughs that were, you know, behind that honor. And it looked like the answer was pretty much everything. She does everything. She's a national expert in breast cancer treatment, prevention, and survivorship. Her research is, you know, all about improving quality of care and quality of life, cancer disparities, policies. She touches so many different ways that breast cancer affects patients during and after treatment. And so to listen to her talk to you about all of these different things was really cool. Yeah, it was it was such an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, Dawn is so impressive. So in the amount of time that we had with her, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was this dichotomy that we're in at this point, where we have these We know more than ever about breast cancer, and we have better treatments than ever before. And one area where she has been so incredibly impactful is this distressing, I can only say there are other words I could use, but really troubling trend where despite this, despite this immense knowledge and therapeutic gain we've had, that there are many patients who do not benefit from these therapies because they don't start them or they don't finish them. And so a lot of our conversation was about why is that? You know, what is it about the challenges that different patient populations face where they are not benefiting in not only the quality of care space, but the quality of life space? And Dawn, I mean, you can't listen to this conversation without having a smile and being excited and motivated because her ideas are tremendous, her impact is huge, and she is leveraging all the assets she has to, to move the bar and to make to make care and life better for breast cancer patients. So I think you're going to love listening to her. Good morning, Dawn. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. It's uh, a cloudy hot day in Atlanta. <laughs> it's all good. But I'm so excited to have an opportunity to talk to you today. And let's, if it's okay with you, we'll just dive right in. Sure. That's great. All right. So let's let's level set for our audience a little bit about your tremendous expertise and insights that you're going to share with us today. I feel so lucky. So let's start off with that we all are aware that there are really pretty tremendous new therapies and advances available for treating breast cancer. So it's a a good piece, very good piece to the breast cancer space. But one of the things that I've read a lot about your area of expertise is that oftentimes these therapies are not maybe started or completed by all patients. So could you help us understand a little bit more about that? Like what kinds of things maybe could stand in the way of a patient, breast cancer patient, receiving optimal cancer therapy? Yeah, it's uh, it was always a surprise to us um, when we started to look at treatment and treatment quality. Um, 
knowing that in patients with cancer, where we've made so much progress that, you know, a lot of patients weren't offered or didn't accept appropriate treatments that after years and years of research, we knew made a big difference. We've made huge headways in terms of cancer. And some of the most important headways we've we've made are in terms of estrogen receptor positive cancers, where we know that the hormonal therapies we give to either block estrogen or lower estrogen are hugely effective at reducing the risk of patients' cancer coming back if they have early stage disease um, or keeping it at bay if they have advanced disease. And for patients with early stage disease, it, it can be quite challenging. They have to take the medicine for five years, sometimes even 10 years. And our early research showed that patients stopped about 25% of the time. They stopped it completely before that period ended. And another 25% of patients took it intermittently. And, um, you know, we were really shocked because this is something that can cure people of their cancer. So when we took a step back and looked at why this might be, we found that, you know, patients that were really young and patients that were much older uh, all had a harder time with adherence. Issues related to how much money you had to pay out of pocket had a big effect on your likelihood of being compliant with treatment. Issues really related to your attitudes and beliefs about medications and how well you knew they work. So patient provider communication all had an impact on patients' likelihood of completing treatment. But probably the most important factor was side effects. As you might imagine, it's hard to take a medication to prevent something that may never happen when that medication causes immediate side effects. And so we've devoted a lot of our research to trying to figure out how to ameliorate those side effects. Oh, that's so interesting. I I appreciate the fact that you started off with the fact that these are incredibly impactful therapies. And you described that they are going to oftentimes reduce the risk of occurrence, or you described maybe keeping at bay a more progressed disease. But but these aren't easy therapies oftentimes. Challenging is the word you use. And, And you gave us a list of issues that might impact adherence to therapy around age and money and belief systems. And then really share that it's side effects that kind of is where the rubber hits the road, that it's a challenging therapy and you maybe don't always, it's not the next day that you know if this works, right? This is something you're going to have to do for a long time. And um, it, it's like many of the things that we do in life where we, we are not absolutely certain of the outcome. We know this is a good thing to do, but, you know, proof is in the pudding. It's going to take time um, to see the impact. So this, this, all of this is just a hard space. So I, I wonder if all those issues that you relayed to us, are there are, are there a group maybe of breast cancer patients who are more at risk, maybe because multiple pieces of these issues impact them? So more at risk than others for 
both poor treatment, well, for poor treatment outcomes than other patients. Absolutely. You can imagine that uh, if you fall into multiple different categories, um, you're going to have an even harder time uh, with treatment. And so, you know, patients that um, maybe have lower health literacy, um, patients that are um, seen by practitioners that may have maybe too busy to explain the details, patients that um, have economic stress. So every out-of-pocket cost is that much more um, that they don't have to maybe pay for food. And then you throw side effects on top of it. Um, you know, their tolerance of a side effect goes way down. And so all of these factors interact with each other to make, you know, patients that are often of lower socioeconomic status or sometimes minority patients that um, patients with language barriers, particularly susceptible to not knowing why the benefits of their treatment outweigh the immediate risks. And so, you know, we've we've looked at ways to try to target multiple different areas to improve um, patients' likelihood of initiating treatment, some of which are educational interventions, some of which are interventions to understand how various different treatments can improve the side effects. We did a very large study that showed that acupuncture can be effective at lowering one of the most common painful side effects of treatment um, and found it to be very effective both in the short term and in the long term. But then that raises other access issues um, with regard to who has access to the treatment that might help reduce the side effect of the treatment that the patients need to take. So, you know, with every step forward there, we're always under uncovering other uh, issues that can be barriers to patients getting optimal therapy. I, I really like the way you framed both of those things that we talked about. I mean, you, you I, I think you would agree that it seems like there are cumulative factors that could make a breast cancer patient more at risk. And then you are thinking about really cumulative or multiple target areas for interventions. So when you were, when you said, you know, that you are uncovering constantly more information and additional challenges, it's like when you're out gardening and you uh, pick up a rock. I was out in the yard doing a lot of work this weekend and all of a sudden there's all these ants and bugs and, and interesting things that perhaps make were unexpected that make what you're doing um, a little more challenging because of the information that you've observed. So taking both of those things into consideration that there are going to be cumulative factors that impact patients and also probably cumulative interventions, if we really want to move the needle right now on cancer health disparities, what should we be thinking about? What should the cancer treatment community be doing now? You know, what are the, the rocks that we can pick up and move to really improve the quality of care for breast cancer patients? 
Well, I think it's twofold. One is that we need to improve access to clinical trials, that one big barrier in terms of understanding which populations do better with which treatments is that access to clinical trials um, and enrollment to clinical trials has, you know, not represented all patient populations. And part of that is, has been addressed by the National Cancer Institute, which has put into place a large number of community practices that can enroll um, all different types of patients from the community so that not everybody has to come to a major academic center to be enrolled in a clinical trial. But what we and, and some of our colleagues in the, in, in the cooperative group system have realized over time is that, you know, there are major barriers such as um, some of the enrollment criteria that, you know, probably preferentially exclude some of the patients that we want to be um, more represented on trials, such as African-American patients, because often a lot of the comorbidities that are more prevalent in those other populations become exclusion criteria. And I know the American Cancer Society has put huge efforts to try to address these issues to increase access to clinical trials, because the more we know who benefits from what treatment, the more precise we can be about our recommendations and the more information we can explain as to, to a patient as to why they may benefit from treatment X or treatment Y with real data. Because I find I take care of a very diverse patient population and I find that the more information you could convey, the more likely patients are to either participate in a trial, but also to participate in, in treatment. Um, and so uh, knowledge is really our, our, um, our sword in this fight. Um, and so the more knowledge we have, the better we, we can do. So, I mean, you're exactly right that the more we know, the better, right? The better our recommendations for every patient it just in general, the more information and the more understanding that we have about our situation and our choices, the better decisions that we can make as patients and the better decisions we can make as practitioners. I think there is no better way to say it than knowledge is absolutely power. So I'd like to pivot just a little bit to a different area that you've been really incredibly impactful in. So we've, we've talked to this point about improving the quality of care for breast cancer patients. What about the quality of life? What recommendations do you have about improving the quality of life for these patients? And maybe are these recommendations different? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, to improve patients' quality of life, you need to really, one, address side effects and uh, address them early and address them well. Um, but you also have to look at all of the other areas that are impacted by a diagnosis and bring them up with patients and try to address them one by one, some of which, you know, is the financial implications of their treatment. And, um, you know, we're doing a large study now looking at better financial navigation to help 
reduce the toxicity of um, the financial toxicity of treatments. The other is really working with people to um, see if we can come up with solutions for them in terms of their side effects, whether it be depression or sexual dysfunction or pain um, to improve their quality of life. I think finally, I, I think that um, really discussing when patients have different treatment options uh, so they understand the risks and benefits of each one so that they can they can make a better better choices in terms of do they want a very small benefit if it's going to cause a lot of long-term side effects. At the end of the day, it comes up with, you know, better communication uh, always helps pave the way um, to, I think, reducing uh, issues related to poor quality of life. You know, it's so, it seems so straightforward that these are conversations that we should be having early and often, but they are hard things to talk about. It, it's hard to talk about financial implications and it's hard to talk about um, issues around side effects and it, the, I guess, other life issues that would really require a long conversation with a practitioner and a difficult conversation and, and several conversations. But I think we are certainly understanding more and more about how crucial those early conversations and continued conversations are. And you brought up something I think is really interesting. I mean, you you spelled out an issue that I think we're becoming more and more aware of, and that's financial toxicity. Um, but let's also talk a little bit about toxicity itself around breast cancer treatment, just the the treatment regimens and the compliance that you mentioned. And you alluded to a couple of things I think that we don't think about all the time when you think about someone who is in the space of breast cancer treatment and just wanting to get better, that that process of getting better comes with a price. And there are lots of different pieces to that price. You mentioned pain and implications around sexual function. So Tell us a little bit more about these areas and why they can be so challenging for patients undergoing breast cancer therapy and maybe how we can begin to have more of these difficult conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think we're used to um, thing, you know, as a physician, you want something that's easy to solve and, um, you know, our, you know, some of our best treatments, you know, have long lasting effects on patients fertility. Um, they there can be weight gain associated with changes in their hormone um, uh, composition. If we put often giving patients and putting them into menopause prematurely, uh, there can be cognitive effects that are that are long lasting. And we have a, a growing number of of cancer survivors, I think there are 3.9 million breast cancer survivors alone. Um, but just you know, you know, being out of the woods in terms of you know um, being further and further out from from the acute treatment doesn't mean that the treatment doesn't have long-lasting effects. And I think you know a large number of people are looking at various different interventions, both from a lifestyle per perspective and exercise and diet, 
um, but also from a you know psychological perspective in terms of making sure that we address depression and um, long-term neurologic consequences. And the thing that we're seeing more and more of that you know I've been focusing more on is that we see long-term survivors that have advanced disease with metastatic disease. I have some patients that have been on, you know, HER2 targeted therapies with metastatic cancer for six and seven years, um, several of whom are under the age of 50. And, you know, sort of dealing with these, the consequences of uncertainty for a long period of time, we really don't know enough about what it means to be a long-term survivor of metastatic cancer because we haven't had the luxury of, of, of being able to, to study that because our treatments didn't work so well. So there's lots to understand and, and lots of ways to make uh, improvements so that um, we can help patients both with their treatment decisions, but also with their life decisions. I, I really love the analogy that you shared about being out of the woods and, and you were speaking of moving away from that acute disease space. It, to me, it what resonated with me is that if, if you are a patient who has had an acute disease, just because you have made it over perhaps that initial diagnosis and initial treatment, it doesn't mean that you, that you're on easy street, right? You're still in the forest. You, you may be out of the woods, but you're still in the forest or the meadow and still facing some incredibly challenging situations and decisions. And what really impacted me that you shared is that the more that we can understand about the challenges that these patients will face and the more that we can share up front with these patients may make that time, that, that movement, you know, out of the woods, but into the meadow, at least easier because you were armed with information and perhaps expectations of what the future may look like. Um, it's just a complicated space. And then you're right in that metastatic space. We, we are we are so grateful that we now can think about long-term survivors, but the implications for these individuals are, are quite different, um, not only around quality of life and toxicity and compliance, um, but also, and I think important for, for all of these populations is that these therapies can be really expensive. So can you help us understand more about that financial toxicity piece? I mean, you've, you've done a lot of work in thinking about ways that we could implement cost reduction strategy. Can you share a little bit more with us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes we we lose track of, um, you know, because there's so many different things we can we can do now. Um, it's hard to sort of prioritize both from an efficacy perspective in terms of how well something works, as well as uh, a cost perspective, because as providers, we don't always know what the implications are for for our patients. One thing we do know is that cancer survivors have a much higher risk of, of bankruptcy and bankruptcy going into bankruptcy, having severe financial toxicity affects mortality. Uh, patients uh, have um, 
uh, a higher mortality. So, you know, thinking about if we had, you know, better ways up front to help us with decision making um, in terms of, you know, knowing if we have two choices and they're both equally efficacious, but one is going to cost a lot less for the patient, like being able to know that up front, I think will help physicians make better decisions. We know from some of our adherence work, just medications that the higher the copay amount, the more likely patients are going to be to discontinue their therapy. We also know that generic drugs have there, if patients start on a generic drug, they're less likely to discontinue their, their treatment. So implications for drug pricing can have a big effect on um, our ability to give qual high quality treatment over, over time. Um, but, you know, we need more uniformity so we know from patient to patient what those out-of-pocket costs are going to be for them. So, one of the reasons I get to talk to you today, which is awesome, is that you are a newly minted American Cancer Society clinical research professor. So congratulations. It's a fantastic achievement and we're absolutely thrilled for you. Thank you. I'm super proud and excited to have been awarded this. Uh, it's a huge honor. And in your proposal, to the American Cancer Society, you asked a lot of these questions. You know, how can we enhance this information that we have to help guide our decision making as practitioners around all these areas, around financial burden and toxicity and age and beliefs and all the things that we've talked about? Can you can you tell us a little bit about what you you know maybe in your wildest dreams? What would you hope to accomplish with your ACS funding? Well, I think one of the one of my the, probably the most important thing that that I do is really try to get other investigators excited about the research that we're doing and and asking new questions that we feel might inform patients or providers or, or policymakers. And a big part of my goal with this award is to have the ability to mentor junior faculty to get them excited about uh, career in cancer care delivery research so that we can improve care for more people and to, you know, use it to take our findings that we, we do in terms of small pilot studies and do much larger trials uh, within the NCI cooperative group system to, to really uh, impact care. And one of the things that we've been focusing a lot on is you know, using more advanced technology to enhance patient-provider communication and ultimately improve outcomes. So to really figure out how to better uh, implement our findings, we're going to, you know, do more pilot work and in, in, in terms of really looking at how we can use some of the newer apps that are out there and other forms of technology, digital medications to make it easier for patients and easier for pro providers to know what's going on with their patients, even in between their visits, which may help keep people on their right medications. I really love that. I, I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to know 
maybe we could just take it down one step. This is so interesting and exciting. So if, if I'm a cancer patient or a caregiver, how might your research in a year or five years impact me? Well, I think that if we learn about how to, for example, better manage a patient's pain by using uh, a, a medication with a sensor so we know exactly when patients are taking their medicine and what their pain is around that time when they're home, then we can probably um, improve patients' quality of life because we can get them on the right dose and the right schedule much faster uh, than, than we do right now when we see patients once a month. And it's really, I think, our, our goals are to, to optimize um, information collection so it's easier for both patients and providers to make the right decision um, in terms of what treatments to give and when. You know, it, it's hard not to listen to you and to get really excited about this space and all the potential. It seems that the common thread that's run through our conversation has been all about the, the incredible power of information. And I love what you said about that your goal is really to optimize this collection of information. So once you have it, I feel like there's a space where the American Cancer Society and, and others in this cancer community can help. Are, are there roles that organizations like ours can play in helping to actually disseminate this information? Absolutely. I mean, you know, doing research just, you know, and publishing it in a journal and having nobody read it or act on it is not um, super satisfying. I think, you know, knowing that you've touched somebody or you've helped somebody make a better decision or know that they have other choices out there um, is, is ultimately um, how you improve outcomes. I think, you know, my job is to partner with patients and advocates and advocacy organizations to get the word out so that patients don't feel like they're all alone if they have a side effect or a symptom or they're struggling with something and that we can we can take that information and, and address it directly to people um, that's how we that's how we best partner um, and so I think you know from a communication standpoint to let patients know what's going on and what's on the horizon, but also from a policy perspective, because, you know, small changes in health policy can have a huge impact on, you know, patients' um, ability to get treatment and supportive care. Um, and so um, really advocating for policy changes so that patients have the right insurance or insurance covers the right things uh, is, is critically important. So I'd say in those two, two areas, American Cancer Society um, can help us as researchers, but more importantly, help patients and um, uh, patients' families. Absolutely. I, I think I speak for all of us when I say that we are just really excited and look forward to this continued collaboration. I'm really grateful for all the work that you and your colleagues do and for this I think, really exceptional opportunity for us to partner with you to improve patients' quality of care, quality of life, impact policy, and, and of course, to share information with practitioners. So I think the best is yet to come. So um, 
maybe in closing, you you are a practitioner. You have an incredible role to play in research. Um, but not all cancer patients get to talk to you all the time. So I would love to know if there's a message you would like to share with our listeners who are cancer patients or who are on that survivor journey or caregivers. Well, I think, thank you for the opportunity. I, I think, um, you know, staying informed and realizing that you're part of a bigger community um, is really important. Um, but also, you know, participating if you're interested in research and getting involved in advocacy is is also important for some patients. Maybe not not everybody, but we really rely um, both um, in the cancer center and in our research community on patient advocates being part of the research process in terms of giving us feedback. Um, telling us what issues are important. I always tell people every single idea I've had has come from listening to, to patients and the struggles that they're going through uh, to try to figure out a way to solve it. You know, some people choose to be part of grant reviews, be part of study teams, but also um, being part of the social media advocacy community to, to help get the, the message out. Uh, so that that your issues direct the research that we do. What a wonderful message, and you're exactly right. It's a great a great way to close the podcast. That we in this cancer space and journey, we all rely on each other, and um, we're thrilled you're a part of the community. and And we do hope that we can all find our place and be a part. So it's going to take us all. Thank you, Don. We're grateful for you. Thank you.